Bora Crawl Radio Podcast looks for interesting people to have great conversations at our local bars all over the world, but mostly on the Upper West Side of New York City. We have a lot of wonderful conversations, albeit now not at bars, but over Zoom, of course, with our favorite imbibement on hand. And I've got mine right here. One very interesting topic we've explored over several BCR programs is the work carried out by the group Witness Against Torture, who for 15 years have actively protested the incarceration of Muslim men from all over the world at Guantanamo, Cuba. Since 2002, almost 800 have been detained, most released, and now 40 remain, but uncharged with a crime. Some have been there going on 20 years in extremely ugly conditions. I'm Rebecca McCain with my co-host Alan Winson, and we will be talking with a former U.S. Army chaplain who loyally served his country at Guantanamo Prison as a Muslim chaplain. Then, at the end of his deployment, was wrongly arrested and accused of espionage and threatened with execution. James Yee's story was documented in the popular press and this story is available in his book, For God and Country, Faith and Patriotism Under Fire. We will be right back to talk with James Yee, but first, here we go. James Yee grew up in New Jersey and, like his father and brothers, served in the U.S. military. He graduated from West Point and followed his dream to join the U.S. Army Chaplain Corps as one of the first Muslim chaplains. In 2003, he took on the most difficult job of ministering to the Muslim prisoners at Guantanamo and the Muslim civilians who worked at the U.S. military base. For this BCR conversation, we're going to get a picture of Gitmo early in its existence and how the military mistreated this American patriot. Yes. Rebecca and Alan, yeah. That's it. Yeah. The Rebecca and Alan Show. It's really great that we can get together. We've been trying to get together now for, I guess, about two years. This is a really big story. It happened about 15 years ago, and we'd like to focus on that and eventually get into a little bit of what you're doing now. You grew up in New Jersey as a Lutheran Christian, and you eventually became a Muslim, which is now you know, a huge part of your life. How did you decide to become a Muslim? It was actually shortly after I graduated from West Point. Right. I was visiting a friend down in DC and her roommate, I met her roommate and her roommate was studying Islam at the time. And uh, we had basically just a, uh, I guess you would call it an interfaith dialogue. I told her, you know, that, that I, I was raised uh, Christian, that I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And then she told me, well, you know, she said, well, what do you think about basically believing in God, but not that God has a son. Mm-hmm. And my, my immediate reaction was, 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 well, that's not what I was taught going to Sunday school. And, you know, I would, I would think that that was misguidance. Yeah. It challenged me as, as to say how I could say that was misguidance without knowing anything about Islam. That made sense to me because I didn't know anything about Islam. So I, I took the next step on my own and, and just bought a basic book, out of out of back then it was Walden Walden Bookstore at, at at the mall and I bought a basic book about Islam, read it and I was intrigued. Learning that 
many of the biblical stories that I had learned as a youngster going to Sunday school were also found in the Quran. You know, the stories of the prophets like, like Abraham and Moses and Noah and his ark and the story of Jesus. So it was familiar. It was very familiar. And what was also intriguing was, was uh, learning that, that Muslims also believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, which was a part of my, my doctrine as a Christian. I didn't know that. Right. And so, it was, like, like you said, it was very familiar. And that's what got me to delve a little bit deeper in time. I, you know, I, I came to accept, accept Islam. I find that so interesting that you're making this, this comparison that the two religions are so similar and have those overlaps uh, that occur. But there must have been a point that something clicked in you and said, I want to be this and not that. I want to be a Muslim and not a Lutheran Christian. For me, it was coming to an understanding of faith in that uh, there's two, there's kind of two separate entities. There's God, and then there's everything that God created. And part of God's creation is is, is mankind, people. And so it, it was it was more or less the for me it was it was a logical uh, jump from seeing like the prophet Jesus, who, who also taught the, the, the monotheistic belief in one God. And it was the point where my understanding was not praying to Jesus, but praying to God, who would be God the Father in, in the Christian sense. But yet Jesus was still a core part of the belief in that he also taught to believe in one God. But it was the, it was the separation of praying to God, but not to Jesus. As Jesus is, is, was a was a man who, who walked on this earth, therefore he, you know, from me, from my understanding, it was accepting that then he was he was Jesus himself was God's creation, and one of us as a, as 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 a person, but also a special person that was selected by God to teach others to believe in, in the oneness. What I'm hearing is that um, the Muslim religion, Islam, gave you a chance to do both. Yeah, to respect both sides of this view of God. So, so almost everything that I learned as a as a Christian in terms of its doctrine did not go away. It wasn't thrown out. It it, it was it's still a part of my 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 belief and, and upbringing. Yeah, which um, that's what I, made I, it simple for me to to convert. I think that's an important part of the story because later on we're going to get to this um, this. Um, dichotomy between the, the Christian and the Islam and seeing and in this country seeing Islam and Muslims as bad and kind of terrorists and Christians as being good and peace loving when in fact they just totally overlap and I think that that's kind of where we're going I, I, I can see with your story you you trained um, to become an accredited Muslim chaplain in the U.S. Army. I know this is a very, it took many years. Could you tell us a bit about that uh, movement that got you in to become a Muslim chaplain in the U.S. Army? Yeah, so when I converted to Islam, I was a young lieutenant. I just graduated, you know, it wasn't long, it wasn't long after I had graduated West Point. I had gone off to Germany to my first uh, military duty assignment as a, as a, a, a new convert. Um, and it was shortly after I got to Germany when uh, 
I got the orders to deploy to the Gulf in the aftermath of the first Gulf War back in, in 1990, in late 1991. Pretty much the war had ended. Uh, we, were, we were set up. I was part of a Patriot Missiles Fire Control uh, Battalion to protect Saudi Arabia from any possible remaining Scud missiles that Saddam Hussein might have had. Uh, we were there for six months, and during the downtime in Saudi Arabia, I found that there was a program that was sponsored by both the American military and the Saudi military that allowed for American Muslim uh, military personnel to go to Mecca on uh, a pilgrimage, so to speak, a minor pilgrimage to visit the holy city of Mecca. I took that opportunity. Um, it raised some eyebrows within the command because they were like, you're not here to, to, to make a, 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 you know, a, a holy pilgrimage. You're here, you're here to fulfill your military duty. Uh, but because that, that program was, was sponsored by, you know, the commanding generals of, of both militaries, you know, my, my commander you know, couldn't, couldn't say no. He had to allow it. And so myself and, and actually three other uh, young Muslims in, in the battalion got to go on a three-day pass. From, we got off from our military duties. We, we were escorted by, by Saudi air, uh, military personnel. We got, we got this uh, quick trip to, to Mecca. And for me, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, the diversity that I experienced within uh, my first visit as a, as a you know, a, a convert of, of Islam only, you know, maybe seven, eight, seven or eight months earlier. Uh, but it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was something inspiring to me to, to see that there were, you know, East Asian Muslim, African Muslim, Russian Muslims. Uh, white, black, all, all different colors. That mirrored what, what I was always taught about America. You know, America is a big melting pot of ethnicities. And really, if you're not Native American, then your ancestors came from somewhere else in the world. Exactly. Not, not America, not the United States, right? So, so you, that, saw, you saw Mecca as a parallel of America. Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, on, 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 on almost an, an ideal level. And so coming back to the coming back to the unit, I thought this I could do more in the faith. And so my immediate idea was, okay, let, let me let me let me find a Muslim chaplain who's serving in the military. But there were none. There wasn't a single Muslim chaplain back in 1991, 1992, at the time. Not in the Air Force, not in the Navy, not in, in, in the Army. And so I thought perhaps that this might be something I could fulfill in the future. Um, I knew it would take uh, uh, you know a great endeavor to to, to learn Islam. Uh, one of the things I want to do from a, just a personal sense was to you know at that point was hey I, I want to learn the Arabic language so I could actually properly recite the Quran to fulfill my prayers and and gain spiritual blessing. Did you have any sense at that time how many um, Muslim servicemen were were in the U.S. military? Um, I, it was very few. It, was, it wasn't many at the time. However, those six or seven months in Saudi Arabia, one of the, one of the interesting things that, that occurred was on the base, uh, it was called uh, Kobar Towers, where the American compound was set up in the eastern province, province of, of Dahran in, in Saudi Arabia. On the base, there was actually a, a big tent. Uh, some people called it a camel tent. But it was set up to 
allow American soldiers who were there to come in and, and have any of their questions answered about Saudi culture. And so much of the Saudi culture revolved around their practice of Islam. So a lot of the a lot of the dialogue was was about Islam and religion. And in that tent, I found a three-ring binder. It was probably an inch or two inches thick. And it was filled with pages. And each page was a, a, a self-completed uh, biographical a sheet of a of a U.S. service member who had converted to Islam during the first Gulf War. Wow! And I, wow. I was told that perhaps there were up, upwards of five thousand soldiers who converted to Islam during during that time frame. One of the things that was that was very different from the first Gulf War from the second Gulf conflict into Iraq was the first President Bush had a genuine coalition of Arab and Muslim countries fighting alongside the U.S. when we ousted Saddam from Kuwait. The second time around, the younger George, President George Bush didn't have that coalition, and we essentially did it alone, without any support. And so the second time around, there was much more of a demonization of Islam as the enemy, whereas the first Gulf War, Muslims were fighting alongside us. They were our allies in, in, this, in this war to, to push Saddam. And as such, I think the atmosphere allowed many of the soldiers at that time to actually be more open-minded and, and learn something about the faith. And many of them took to it. Uh, so, you know, coming, coming back from that pilgrimage when I was deployed, I saw that the numbers of Muslims in, in the ranks are going to indeed grow and that there, there needs to be Muslim chaplains. So I thought that was something I could fulfill. I went on a couple of years later to, to try and pursue that track, uh, but I learned that to become a Muslim chaplain, the baseline education, you needed a, a, a doctorate of divinity or a master's of divinity. But there were no Islamic seminaries, seminaries to give you that that masters of divinity, that religious training to become a Muslim clergy person certified by Western American standards, educational standards. So I had almost given up on the idea that it, it maybe wasn't possible to become a, a, a Muslim chaplain because the education requirement, you know, how could, how could that be fulfilled? So I went on and still pursued Islamic education on my own, ended up making the Hajj, the actual large pilgrimage after I got out of the military or left active duty. And then from there, I ended up in, in Damascus, Syria to study some Arabic so I could learn how to read the Quran and, and learn a little bit more in depth of, of this Islamic tradition from, from traditional Muslim scholars. And, and it wasn't um, until afterwards that uh, a person that I had met in the military, uh, a former gunny sergeant in the Marines who who spearheaded the, the drive to bring Muslim chaplains into the military, connected that, that Islamic seminary to the Department of Defense uh, to get that educational requirement accepted. And I had done traditional studies, so I was able to get that seminary to accept my studies and my transcripts and give me a, a letter of equivalency to show that my studies were at, at a minimum equivalent to what they were offered in their uh, Masters of Islamic Ministry program. This went on for about four years, right? 
So this was yeah, so this not, wasn't a minor not, thing. This was a a major commitment on your part. Yeah. So in in Damascus, so I ended up in Damascus, and I stayed there about five years. Coming back in the summers to spend the summer months at, at home with with my parents in New Jersey. But uh, yeah, it was certainly a commitment that I had to make. And you left the military during this time. I had left active duty. I was still active had a, duty. I still had a reserve inactive reserve status, but. Right. Uh, I was off active. And and that's where you met your wife, yes? At so, that period. So yeah, I, I had I had met my wife in Damascus, Syria. Uh, she was a an Islamic studies student in the university, Islamic university that I had, had studied at. It's it's in uh, it's called Abu the, the school called Abu Nur. And and at the time the the head of the head of that Islamic uh, institution was renowned for 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 interfaith dialogue. Right. So so soon after the 9/11 attacks, you were ordered to go to the US prison of Guantanamo in Cuba to be the Muslim chaplain and minister to the detainees. What uh, yes. what were your feelings about that at the time? Uh, well actually the my my what, what we call the my endorser, ecclesiastical endorser, the gunny sergeant who now took on the position of ecclesiastical endorser or endorsing agent for Islamic chaplains in the U.S. military. He had contacted me shortly after 9-11 and said, they need a chaplain down in Guantanamo. And he said, I, I, I want them to send you. Um, I resisted at first and said that, you know, I, I you know, I, I just came on active duty. Uh, I'm, I'm getting settled at my, my first unit out in Fort Lewis. 29th Signal Battalion, uh, you know, my, my wife and, and daughter who had just recently been born were, were now in Olympia, Washington with me. And I said, this really wasn't a good time for me, for me to go. So he put it off and he, he, he found some other Muslim chaplains who were in the ranks. Uh, the first Muslim chaplain to be down in Guantanamo was actually a Navy chaplain who had already and then after those six months, they said, well, now the army needs to send a Muslim chaplain. And so that's when uh, the endorser came back to me and said, no, it's, it's your time to go now. I went down there and I initially had a, a six-month assignment, but later would get involuntarily extended for another six months. And we have to remind our listeners, this was very early in the existence of Guantanamo. Yeah, so I, I was sent there in November 2002, so I was... I, I got there just after the first anniversary of September 11th. Could you tell us a bit about the living conditions or your first initial impression of where you were when you got there? Uh, uh, yeah, so I really didn't know much about Guantanamo itself, the base, or even the operation before I got down there. The only thing I knew was what I had read in the media. And from many of the articles and media coverage of Guantanamo, one of the things that jumped out at me was that there was an enormous amount of misunderstanding about Islam. And I saw different comments made in the media by military personnel that were, were, were actually quite offensive towards, towards Muslim personnel and caused conflict between themselves and, and the prisoners. And so one of the things that I, I actually thought I could, could change right off the bat was bring a better, uh, more sound understanding of, of Islam and Muslims to the operation so that so that people could actually do their jobs better in this detention operation. James, you um, you had never seen a situation like this before. I mean, I guess no one had. One of the things that you um, 
talk about in your in your book. Uh, one of the images is that um, it was very very hot, and and you described being sweaty all the time. Um, right. You're a young Muslim chaplain. You had never done this before, and here at Guantanamo, that must have been scary. Uh, I, I wouldn't say scary, but it was uh, it was challenging. Okay. It was it was very challenging. Uh, you know, um, it it was the the weather was 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 hot. It was humid. These cell blocks in Camp Delta that that I would go into every day, in, in which there were forty eight cells, twenty four on one side, twenty four on the other, with the corridor going down the middle. Each cell being a single uh, a single cage like. Uh, room so to speak where each where a single prisoner was being held those cell blocks were not air conditioned so it was, it was it was always hot in those in those cell blocks and going into the, the cell blocks there, it was always an experience where so many of the men who were being held in, in these cage like cells uh, would call out to me because they wanted to complain about something they wanted they wanted to tell me something uh and, and they recognized that, that that was I was chaplain I was the Muslim chaplain taking over from my predecessor uh, chaplain chaplain Mubarak. It was quite chaotic. There, there were no rules. Uh, we in the military call the rules standard operating procedures SOPs. And the SOPs for this operation, this joint test was operation, was not, had not even been written by the time I got down there. And so I got that. I was there. I got it there in November of 2002. The, the place opened in January of 2002. So we're looking at uh, like what 10 months. 10 months later, 10 months later, the, the standard operating procedures for the for the prison were not even in place. So people were pretty much just winging it down there. During the time I was down there, part of our part of our our duties as staff officers to the, the detention operation side of the, of the mission was to author, was to write standard operating procedures. And of course, I, I authored the religious support section of, of the, the first iteration of, of the standard operating procedures for, for Camp Delta. So you were, you were paving your own way. Uh, I was writing, writing the rules. I was writing the, the standards of, of what a, a chaplain should be doing in this situation in Guantanamo. However, there was one there was one challenging aspect, and that was President Bush had said that Geneva Convention didn't apply in Guantanamo. The lack of Geneva Convention, this kind of open-ended aspect to who these people are. They were called detainees and not prisoners. They were detained, uh, kind of almost makes it nice sounding. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's right. part of the idea that Geneva Convention is going to apply because in, in a normal war situation, and this is the war on terror, they would be prisoners of war. And under Geneva Convention, prisoners of, of war have to be treated according to certain doctrine and get and they get certain rights. You know, we were ordered basically not to refer to them as prisoners, that they were detainees. We didn't want anyone to be confused that these individuals might be prisoners of war. I wonder if we can get a little more sense of the living conditions of these detainees. Could you describe a little more of what they looked like, what an individual uh, Muslim man who had been detained, how he'd be living? Each cell uh, also also had, a, on the back side of the cell where the, the tin walls were of the whole cell block, 
there was there was a a a window section that was that was also um, graded where the sun could come in. The roof of the cell block was also this this like a steel me steel metal tin that's that that covered that covered this the entire cell block. But the the sun would you know would beat down on that on that on 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 each cell block and it would heat up the heat up the insides. That sounds awful. I mean, it sounds like it would be an oven. Camp X-ray, which was the makeshift prison facility that was that was put up real quick prior to Camp Delta, was completely open open aired uh, to the to the elements of of, of of the environment, the sun, the heat, uh, if it rained, sand, wind, whatever, and and those cells were actually made made more of of, of chain link fence. It looks very starkly similar to what you might find in a, in a dog kennel. <laughs> a dog kennel. Wow. But this had changed by the time you got there. By the time I got there, Camp, Camp X-Ray had been closed and Camp Delta was open. And so the, the cell blocks were much larger. The walls of the cells inside were made of, of a much stronger steel mesh, not chain link. Did you believe that any of these detainees, these Muslim prisoners, were of al-Qaeda terrorists, were al-Qaeda terrorists? At first, when I got there, I didn't know what to believe. Um, we were led to believe that they, they were captured al-Qaeda terrorists who were responsible for 9-11. Uh, but it, it didn't take long for me to understand that not one individual in Camp Delta, in Guantanamo, during the time I was there, had any direct connection to the attacks on 9-11. That was not a reality. That was especially true because anyone who had a potential legitimate connection to the attacks of 9-11 or a legitimate terrorist attack anywhere else in the world, like on, on the African embassies, the bombing or the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen, anyone who connected to a, a, a potential real terrorist attack that was captured by our government was not brought to Guantanamo. They were brought and put in a secret CIA black site during those early years. So during the time I was there, I often make, make the statement that there, there was really no terrorists, real terrorists in Guantanamo. And they came from all over the world, right? Didn't they? They were, yeah, they were prisoners from all over the world. And, and, and what was, what was, what was uh, intriguing was the, we called it the interpreter section, translators. We had translators who spoke Arabic, uh, Urdu, Peshtu, Farsi. We had translators who spoke Russian, French, German, Turkish. We even had translators who spoke Chinese. I'm a, I'm Chinese American, and I don't I don't speak Chinese. But we had translators who spoke Chinese because there were three dozen prisoners from Western China who were at Guantanamo. They're known as Uyghurs. They live in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region in Western China. We have read that many of the prisoners were actually snatched by the U.S. military based on false information that they were getting from rivals in their country. When you were ministering to these men, uh, did any of them tell you uh, these kinds of stories, that they were, in fact, just a shopkeeper, that someone had it out for them? I didn't really go into conversations with the prisoners about what happened before they got to Guantanamo. I was very careful 
not to do that. And one of the reasons is, as a chaplain, when I'm working with what we call a parishioner, we have, or the parishioner has what's called privileged communication. It's similar to a patient with their doctor or a client with their attorney. That the communication that they, they have with the attorney, with your doctor, with your chaplain, with your pastor or clergy person is privileged. So one of the first questions I asked of the legal team at Guantanamo was, does privileged communication apply here in Guantanamo when I'm speaking to the prisoners? And actually the legal officer at Guantanamo, her name, her name was, uh, her name was uh, Colonel Beaver, Diane Beaver. She was a West Point grad. Uh, and I asked her this question and she didn't know the answer. And she queried up to the U.S. Southern, Southern Command the answer came back to her. She came back to me and said, no, privileged communication doesn't apply in Guantanamo. The prisoners at Guantanamo do not have the right to privileged communication. So that meant anything that I said or they said to me was open game to be disclosed to other people. And I, I would imagine this was because basically Guantanamo was a place to interrogate these prisoners and get information, which... Clearly, they didn't have, but that's what they were there for, is to get information. And you might have been a conduit for some of that information. And, and it put me in a situation where at any time in the future, based on my conversations with any of the prisoners, I could be called to testify for or against a prisoner. So you avoided those conversations. I didn't want, I, yeah, I didn't, I, I never would, would want to be put in that situation. First of all, if I was forced to be put in that situation, I would be openly breaking, you know, my, my ethical boundaries as a, as a, as a, as a pastor, as a, as a pastor, as a minister, as a, as a person of, of the, of the cloth, of the clergy. You must have got to know some of the jailed men. Can you tell us about one or two of them? Uh, of course, most of the most vivid uh, memories that I have are, are those who spoke pretty good English where I didn't need a translator. One of them actually is, is quite renowned. His name was Shakar Amr. He was a prisoner in Guantanamo who was, who was had a very dynamic personality. Uh, he quickly became a leader amongst the prisoners in the cell blocks. He spoke English well. I believe he actually had been in the, in, in, in the US. He, he was living in the UK. So he was a, he was a, um, he wasn't a British citizen, but he had legal residence in the UK, and he was a but he was a Saudi citizen. I had many interactions with him because he often would, would uh, whenever I came to his particular cell block, would would have a number of complaints that he had had listed uh, that he would pass on to me and, and ask that I, you know, forward these complaints up the up the chain of command. He was a very dynamic individual, and he was liked by many of the guards actually because sometimes he actually helped the guards control some of the other prisoners from, from acting out or from rioting, causing disturbances within the cell blocks. But then on the other hand, when they found the need to protest or demonstrate, he also could instigate and pro and, you know, a, a mass protest within the cell blocks. One of the stories that I often tell about, about his situation is, is uh, I recall one time when he was, uh, he was, he was disciplined and he was put in what's called the MSU, the maximum security units. Now, this was uh, a cell block in which the cells were, was all steel. The walls were made of all, all steel. There was no steel mesh. So you couldn't, you couldn't really communicate to the person next to you. 
you were almost all the time in complete darkness and they took away all of your items when you were put into the MSU block. And one time I, I, I came across Shakir, he was in the MSU block. They often had the air conditioner blasting in this MSU block. So the prisoners were freezing in there. Uh, he didn't have a mat to sleep on. It was just a steel bolted bed that, that that's that's in there. He was suffering from from uh, having to sleep on this on this this steel bed with no mat, uh, no blankets, nothing. Uh, he, he and he said, "Hey, chaplain, can can you can you ask them to give me you know the, the bedroll mat that all the other prisoners have in, in, in their cells, um, in, in the general cell blocks? Those those bedroll army bedroll mats were used." Uh, by the prisoners to pray on, uh, and he said, "Hey, can I get one of those at least to sleep on in here?" And so I made the request to to get a, a bedroll for him, and as, as well as a, a blanket under under the the reasoning that he he needed a blanket to actually be properly covered when he makes his prayers in that cell. So it was a it, I made it as a religious accommodation request, and uh, noted that he wasn't on suicide watch or anything like that. So you know with, with Within that day, he was able to get a bedroll and a, and a blanket to, right. to make his, his situation a little more comfortable in that in that MSU block. They actually, the bedroll was actually given for the purpose of prisoners to to pray on, and okay. it's 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 the army bedroll. It's a styrofoam bedroll that we use when we go to the field in case we have to, you know, when we sleep on the ground, you know, we put the bedroll out, we pull out our sleeping bag. Let's talk a little bit about um, other ways that the prisoners were so-called softened up in order for them to uh, give information, which they didn't have. One of the things you described was really awful. It's called IFRing, which you said uh, was usually a very, happened very seldom in most um, military prison situations. But here in Guantanamo, it was used often. What is IFRing? Yeah, IRF. So IRF actually is an acronym that came up in Guantanamo, and we used to refer to it actually as earthing. 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 It became a verb. We like the the guards would say, "Yeah, we earthed ten prisoners today." Mm. Uh, earth actually stands for IRF. It stood for um, it was either one of two things: immediate response force or immediate reaction force. And this immediate reaction force was formed by the guards who were always on standby to perform what's more technically called in a prison situation, a forced cell extraction, a, a situation where you have to extract the prisoner from his or her cell because the prisoner refuses to come out. We refer to forced cell extractions in Guantanamo as an, an earthing because it was done by what we called an immediate response force, an immediate reaction force. And this was a, a team made up of about eight, eight of the guards they, they were um, donned don, don with riot gear. They had like a catcher's uh, chest protector. They had helmets, they had face shields. They had like like the, like hockey type gloves. And when a prisoner was disciplined, a lot of times it was because a prisoner was to be disciplined and taken to MSU, they refused to go voluntarily. So then they would have to be forcefully extracted from the cell or, or earth. And so this, this earth team would come. Uh, the first thing is the, the leader of the earth team would, would spray the prisoner down with, with pepper spray. And then as the pepper spray took effect, 
they essentially quickly opened the door and, you know, you got five or six guys tackling the prisoner, throwing him down on his face, uh, knees on the head, knees on the back, you know, shackles his, their ankles, shackles their hands, you know, their, 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 their hands behind their back. And it was, and they, you know, they used these plastic zip ties to, to do it very quickly. And then they dragged the guy out. Were they injured when this? Oh, a lot of times. Yeah. So they pretty much got beat down, forced into submission, and then taken away. Now, sometimes there's a, there's a situation where you actually have to forcefully extract some uh, prisoner from their cell because they refuse to come out for whatever reason. But what was happening in Guantanamo was the reasons were so ridiculous as to what, 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 what uh, sparked an earthing. And I'll give you an example. Contraband in the cell. Prisoners were allowed a styrofoam cup in their cell. That was standard. But sometimes the guards on one ship would be uh, amenable to giving a second styrofoam cup to different prisoners. And the reason being, the prisoners often used one of the styrofoam cups with water to clean themselves after they used the bathroom toilet. So they used it. So you don't want to drink from that cup because you use that cup to, to clean yourself with. Right? So they would ask the guard, can I get a second cup? You know, I clean myself with this one. And some of the guards would be like, sure, no problem. Now, when a shift change happens and some of the guards do the inspection, they find that the prisoner has two cups. And then they would say, oh, the second cup, which they're not supposed to have, they refer to it as illegal contraband. Prisoner is found to have illegal contraband in the cell. And so then they get disciplined and say, okay, now you have to spend six days in the maximum security unit. And the person will be like, what? The other guard gave me the cup. And now you're going to punish me for it? I'm not coming out. You're not taking me to the maximum security unit. So then they would call the earth team, and the guy would get beat down and hauled away. So the, the problem was caused, in, ingrained by how the guards themselves were, were carrying out policies, right? So this was the ridiculousness that was going on with how the earthings were, were being used. And it was so it was routinely used as a way to really harass the prisoners um, and, and a way in which the guards could get away with using violent force on the prisoners when, when the, the situations were, were caused by the, you know, the guards they themselves. But maybe the harassment um, that was made against the Muslim religion was even worse in some ways than the physical harassment, the disrespecting of the Quran, the disrespecting of the of the culture of of Islam. Could you talk about that? That that was used as torture for these men, who were yeah. devout Muslims. Yeah. Well, so so you know, what, one of the primary roles of a, of a chaplain in all situations is to is to uh, provide religious support protect what we call the, the, the free exercise of worship, to make sure that everyone in the military situation, whether it's a U.S. personnel, whether it's a civilian on a military installation, or whether it's a prisoner who's being held by the U.S. government, by the U.S. military, that they have their full rights to practice their religion. That's the main primary role of a, of, of a chaplain. So in this situation, I'm, I'm down in Guantanamo, uh, trying to accommodate as much as possible religious practices, you know, throughout the operation for the prisoners so that they can pray, so that they can hear the call to prayer, so they can fast the month of Ramadan, uh, so that they can uh, have halal food, food that is, you know, uh, appropriate, that, that 
for Muslims to eat, uh, halal being a concept similar to kosher in the, in the Jewish religion, right? So these were the things that I, I was, I was types of rights, religious rights that I was protecting for the prisoners. Uh, but the guards, the guard force, uh, and sometimes probably in, in, in the interrogations, which, which I was far removed from, they would utilize different aspects of Islam against the prisoners to try to try and break them, to try and anger them, to frustrate them, to instigate them. Simple. Some of them, some of the things were simple. Were uh, were simple like during the time of prayer, guards would would stomp up and down the, the corridors of of the cell blocks to disturb the, the, the prisoners while they're praying, or throw stones at them while they're in prayer. Right? Or sometimes the guards, uh, if they wanted to uh, play with play with the, the games of the prisoners, they, they would turn the water off to their small water uh, fountains that they had in their cells just prior to the prayer. So this would prevent the prisoners from being able to wash before prayer. Mm. So Muslims, when they pray, before we pray, we, we do a ritual washing. We wash the hands, we wash the, the feet, and we wash the face and ears and, and whatnot. So that's a little ritual that's done before you pray. You can pray. So they would turn the water off to prevent the prisoners from being able to wash so then they couldn't make their prayer. And the, and the Quran would be thrown on the ground. And So one of the big issues down in Guantanamo, uh, which came up, was was about the desecration, they called the desecration of the Quran. This happened both on the intelligence side of the operation, the intelligence gathering side of the operation, the interrogation, and also within the cell blocks. So each each prisoner was allowed to have a Quran in the cell. And we consider the, the words of the Quran to be the literal words of, of God, God Almighty. Right? So it's a book that's held in high esteem, highly respected. And even in our in our homes, we put the Quran on the highest shelf in our home out of respect. And and so in Guantanamo. Different personnel, U.S. personnel, realize the, the respect that Muslims uh, give to the Quran, and they they try to use that against the prisoners. In the interrogation later, I, I I learned that, for example, in front of a shackled prisoner, prisoners would come back and complain that a, a, an interrogator would, would take the Quran and throw it on the floor while the prisoner was sitting shackled in, in his chair, couldn't respond, couldn't do anything to try and 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 break the prisoner. Um, kick the Quran on the ground, sit on it. This, this uh, practice of, of abusing the Quran, of desecrating the Quran in order to, to anger the prisoners, it became so bad that prisoners throughout the entire cell blocks decided in mass to refuse to speak to their interrogations, period. The intelligence gathering operation essentially came to a dead halt. They wanted to resolve the problem that they created, and yeah. they didn't know how. So they called on the chaplain. And so I was called in to, to, to ask how, how they could resolve the situation. And one of the things that I did was uh, I said, okay, so I, I agreed to write a, an SOP, a standard operating procedure, on how to properly care for and handle the, the, the Korans mm. that were in, in the prisoner cells. Later on, when the desecration of the Quran became a news story, the command at Guantanamo disclosed the SOP that I had authored that showed, look, this is how we treat the Quran, and we have a policy in place to ensure that we're not desecrating the Quran or treating it improperly. And they disclosed this SOP, which I, I had, had written. And as far as you know, this SOP continues at Guantanamo? As, as far as I know. 
Yeah, this is Bar Crawl Radio, and I'm Alan Winston with my co-host Rebecca McCain, and we are talking with James Yee, who was one of the first Muslim chaplains at the U.S. Military Detention Center at Guantanamo, Cuba. So um, many months into your tour at Gitmo, you got some leave to visit with your wife and your child. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably were totally exhausted at that at that point, having been there for quite quite a while. You flew from Cuba to Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, this was the first leg of your trip to get back to the West Coast. And then all hell broke loose. You were arrested. You were imprisoned. Why were you detained? Why were you eventually put into a solitary confinement for over two months? What happened? So, yeah, after serving down in Guantanamo for 10 months, I got what we call in the military R&R. R&R, it stands for rest and relaxation. Um, and, and the purpose is really to get soldiers to go home, spend a week or two at home, see their family, and they come back re-energized, rested to resume their mission. Right? So many of the people in Guantanamo got R&R. And, and a lot of times it's given after six months. After 10 months, I got R&R. And I was on my way back to Olympia, Washington from Guantanamo. The flights from Guantanamo land at, Jackson, at the Jacksonville Naval Air Station. And then you catch a cab and you get to the international airport in Jacksonville and you catch your flight to any other city. And my flight was then on to Tacoma, Washington, where I'd, I'd get back home in Washington State. But when I came back and landed back on U.S. soil and was at the Jacksonville Naval Air Station, I was I was secretly arrested. Uh, I was I was held. I was interrogated. Uh, all my belongings searched. Uh, FBI interrogated me, uh, Na- uh, NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative uh, Service, uh, the, the FBI-like personnel in, in the Navy uh, interrogated me, and eventually I was I was arrested for for what they claim for what they claimed is, is I was carrying suspicious documents, and then I was brought to a naval brig down in Charleston, South Carolina. And I was held in solitary confinement, and the charges against me would would be uh, spying, espionage, aiding the enemy, mutiny, and sedition. These four offenses are all capital crimes, which carried a death penalty, especially in a time of war. And then a fifth charge they said I would I would be handed would be uh, uh, failing to obey a general order, and I was threatened with uh, a death penalty court-martialed by military prosecutors from, from Guantanamo. And this is after you had done a stellar job at Guantanamo. Oh, your so your, yeah, your reports. Guantanamo, I had actually earned two, two, mil, uh, two awards for my, for my service down in Guantanamo. In addition, my annual review, my officer evaluation report was due during the time I was in Guantanamo. And it was signed by my commander, down in Guantanamo two days before I was arrested. And this was the best review that I had received in the, the, the short time that I had, had, had been a chaplain and the best officer evaluation review that I had ever received in the US military. It had said stuff like, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a captain that I, I should be promoted immediately. You know, I'm ready to serve in, in responsibilities held by a Lieutenant Colonel, you know, skip major, right? So when I got that evaluation report, I was very pleased and I was like, you know, my career is, is really going to take off after this assignment. And that was dated two days before I was arrested. So two days later, now I find myself arrested 
uh, in solitary confinement being accused essentially as a terrorist spy. Yeah, this is a big story. The media got involved in it. I mean, the military was doing everything they can to uh, decimate your career. Two-star General Jeffrey Miller, the commander at the top at Gitmo, was the center of many of these baseless claims that were made against you. And up to the point that you said that you flew to Cuba, from Cuba to Jacksonville, it seems that you were, had good, very good relations with him. I mean, I, he had praised I you. I because I often, you know, I, I fulfilled a very unique role at Guantanamo as the Muslim chaplain. So, you know, I had, I had many interactions with, 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 the, with the general. Um, of course, I reported directly to the commander of the detention operation, who was a, who was a colonel, Fulberg colonel. But, you know, I was often in a situation where, you know, I had access to General Miller on, on different occasions. So can you explain what happened? I mean, th this, this was clearly baseless, and it was proven baseless. There was a New York Times uh, editorial that you mentioned in your book that I read. I went and found it and read it called Military Injustice. Um, and, and you were in the news. It, it eventually, it ruined your military career, um, even though you were uh, eventually um, exonerated of all charges that were, that were made against you. But yet, it, you really couldn't continue. You tried to, but you, you couldn't. Yeah, so, yeah, there was, uh, there was, a, there was a colleague of mine in uh, the Joint Detention Operations Group. He was like the liaison to the intelligence operation uh, and uh, his name was uh, uh, Captain Orlick. He had it out for me. Um, he had some animosities for me. Um, wow. I, uh, later, I, I, you know, after looking back, I, it seemed that he was very uh, anti-Islamic. He was the one who started, you know, the, these investigations of me saying that I was being subversive and whatnot. And, and the general bought off on it and said, all right, you know, go further with it. And, and let's you know let's 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 get him. And and so you know all of these false accusations that I was a spy that I was working for the enemy. You know, you know when the real questions started asked, you know were started being asked when I was held in solitary confinement. Uh, you know when when it hit the news, you know, everyone everyone wanted to know what happened. People in Congress uh, wanted to know what was going on. How is it? How is it that you know, the Muslim chaplain is sitting in jail being accused of? Of these capital crimes, and when people started asking the question, it, it came out that I that I had actually been forwarding, you know, reports and complaints from the prisoners about their treatment, how they were being treated, and uh, I think what had happened was the intelligence operation felt I was interfering with what they were doing by by forwarding the prisoner complaints about mistreatment and torture and abuse, uh, and so they wanted to get me out of out of. Guantanamo, and they, they came up with this plot to, to get me out and, and wow. actually accused me of, of working for the enemy, uh, or as the charge would say, aiding the enemy. Yeah. At the end of your book, For God and Country, Faith and Patriotism Under Fire, uh, please, and every, if you have a chance to, to get it, get it. It's, it's a fascinating read, and there's much more to this story. But at the end of your book, you write, quote, I fear that my ordeal simply stemmed from the fact that I am one of them, a Muslim. Is that why you were accused, jailed, eventually forced to resign from the army because you were a Muslim? It, it had a, a large, a large role in, in how I was treated and how I was accused because, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was an enormous amount of what we call Islamophobia throughout the whole country. 
and it permeated in the military. And by and large, people equated Islam with terrorism. I mean, immediately after 9-11, within the ranks in my own unit, you know, the, the Muslim personnel that we had were, were, were being accused of being disloyal, questioned as to how they could serve in the military after what happened in 9-11. So being Muslim myself made it very easy for, for, for people within the ranks to attack me in that way. It wasn't the only reason. I, I believe my ethnicity also played a role, being a Chinese-American. Chinese Americans have, have fought that battle uh, of, of having to prove loyalty to America that we're not working for the Chinese government. So here it is, I'm Muslim and I'm Chinese, and, and I was accused of being a terrorist spy and was even at one point referred to as a, a Chinese Taliban. They were, it was said of me, who the hell does this Chinese Taliban think he is telling us how to treat our prisoners? I believe my ethnicity also played a part, uh, as well as my faith, in being targeted. Do you have any continued contact? Do you know anything about what's con- going on now at Gitmo? The, the closest that I, that I in, in terms of information that I get are, are prisoners who have been released within the last few years who you know, I, I, I have been in contact with on social media. Uh, there's one particular one who's the, the main character in the, the current movie that's out now called The Mauritanian, hmm. Muhammadu Salahi. So, you know, people like him and others who, who have been released can, can better explain to me and, and other people in the public that, uh, of what the situation is like now, post-Obama and post-Trump. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think there's anyone there? There's 40 remaining. Do you think there's anyone there that should be there? Good question. I would say that perhaps there are a handful of prisoners who may be legitimate terror suspects. But my view is, if they are indeed legitimate terror suspects, then they should be put in the legitimate court of law, put forth the evidence, and then if the evidence is strong enough, convict them and then punish them accordingly. However, what's happening in Guantanamo is you have more than a few who are being held there indefinitely without charge. Some of them who the government, our government says, are too dangerous to be released and that any evidence that we may have on them has been tainted because they've been so badly abused and tortured that that evidence would not be admissible in court. So they're being held indefinitely without charge and that's against all norms of international law with with regard to how we're handling the situation legally. I think there's a handful who are cleared for release who have been deemed no longer threat have no charges against them that are that and, tr- are and Trump wouldn't Trump wouldn't release them right maybe right. maybe President Biden hopefully will. so what are you doing now did you did you stay in the Muslim ministry uh, so uh, right now I'm I'm no I'm not uh, actively involved in in any pastoral duties as a Islamic clergy person sometimes when I travel to different places throughout the U S different cities the, the community knows me and so and it's very often that i might be invited to be a, a guest speaker or even be a guest to provide the the friday prayer service in, in any particular city that i may be visiting if, if, it, if, get, if word gets around that, that that i'm in the area i'm more active today with with uh, a vet, the veterans art movement all with an organization called frontline arts and the small group that that, uh, that I work with is, we take our old military uniforms, we we make paper out of it, 
it's a process, uh, an artistic process of, of, of handmade paper making. And we make, we make our old uniforms into paper for the purpose of making art that is reflective of our own individual military experiences. So a lot of my uniforms have been transformed into paper in which I put imagery that reflects my experience in Guantanamo and in other aspects of my, my military experience. And can we see any of these images online? Uh, frontlinearts.org has, uh, has probably has some links to military art that has been made from old military uniforms from, from different veterans of different eras. So one of your goals you mentioned early in your book, For God and Country, is that you wanted to, quote, make the Army a better place for people to serve by advocating for diversity and freedom of religion. Does Islam continue to have a negative connotation in the U.S. military? Um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I'm pretty much far removed. However, there's something that I do look at in, in this aspect in which there are more Muslim chaplains now serving in the U.S. military than before. As such, some of the Muslim chaplains that we have serving in the ranks have great careers. Uh, for the first time, we have a, we've, we've had a Muslim chaplain serve as a brigade command chaplain at the rank of colonel, full bird colonel. Uh, many of the Muslim chaplains I know have, have reached 05, lieutenant colonel level. By and large, we see Muslim chaplains now succeeding in, in the US military, and hopefully that having an impact on on the military personnel that, that, and the that, attitudes. that, that they work with. It sounded like you've paved the way for others to see this as a possible career. You've made it possible for them to do that. The chaplaincy in general has, uh, has really expanded within the, the American Muslim community. Uh, but no doubt, you know, as one of the first Muslim chaplains, a, a lot of people will point towards my experience with my sacrifice as, as uh, someone who has um, made it a little bit easier for other chaplains to serve. But again, as I was saying, a Muslim chaplaincy within in different aspects of society is, is, has really taken off. And we see many prominent Muslim chaplains now serving our, our universities, like, like at Princeton, Yale, uh, NYU, the, the chaplain at, at, at NYU, who is also a Muslim chaplain who serves the, who served the, uh, the NY, uh, NY, FD, the, the New York City Fire Department. Hmm. So, so we're seeing a lot, a lot of chaplaincies, especially on on, on university campuses. And there's now an, a very established Islamic seminary at, at at Hartford, at the Hartford Seminary, and they have a, a well-developed program, which now is is the the base for Muslim chaplains to get their seminary education. James Yee, um, thank you so much for joining us here on Bar Crawl Radio to talk about your experiments at, at Gitmo and then and then afterwards. It's been a pleasure to meet you. I met you a couple of years ago, as I said, at the uh, at that, uh, I think it was a Lutheran church in Washington, D.C., where Witness Against Torture uh, huddles down to make their protest every January, though they haven't done it lately because of COVID. But it's been a pleasure to get this story from, from your mouth. Um, and from your mouth to God's ear, I I hope I, these changes have been positive and will continue. I hope so. I mean, um, I'm hoping that with the new administration, the Biden administration, that he takes up, that President Biden takes up the mantle to really try and get Guantanamo closed as, uh, 
as some unfinished business that you know, especially because he was he was Barack Obama's vice president. Yeah. Uh, president Obama had had promised to close Guantanamo, didn't get it done. This is an opportunity for President Biden to absolutely take the torch and and and, and really try and correct the situation which has has really harmed the U.S. reputation on, on its stance of, of human rights. Yeah. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. And um, thank you again. There is a lot more to James Yee's story uh, in, in his book. And I... For God and Country. For God and Country. Right. For yeah. God. Patriotism under fire. Thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking with James Yee who for a time, soon after the 9-11 attacks, was a Muslim chaplain at the U.S. military base on the southwestern coast of Cuba. This is an important story that exposes truths about this country we call America. With everything else that's going on here, corruption in politics and domestic terrorism, lack of action on climate change, a rampaging killer virus, it is difficult to keep track of other American outrages. The continued atrocities against Muslim political prisoners at the U.S. Naval Station at Guantanamo Bay should not be forgotten. This is Barcrow Radio. Please tell us what you think of our programming at barcrowradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments.